For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. Yeah, we've been studying through Romans chapter 1. We've spent a couple of weeks really fleshing out the implications of this verse right here in Romans 1.18. It says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of those who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Yes, we've been reading about the bad news, which is God's judgment on the human race because of our ungodliness and unrighteousness. And, and what he says is that God is trying to reveal the truth about himself through what he has created. And yet we human beings, we don't want to hear what God has to say. And so we've looked at this visual aid the last couple of weeks that, you know, here we are, God is presenting the truth to us and we are turning away. We are saying, no, I don't want to hear that. We're actively suppressing the truth and that is wrong. And God is upset about that. And when God looks at the human race, what he sees is a lot of this. He sees humans holding their ears, holding, you know, turning away, putting our heads in the sand, pulling against his leading, his direction, what he's trying to reveal to us. And we said it's not this super obvious, you know, the, one way we might think of it. But what it is, is we've looked at a couple different ways God is revealing his truth over the last couple of weeks. He says, what is known about God is evident within them. We can look inside of us. We can see that it's there. God made it evident to us. Since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. So God has made this clear. He's not trying to hide from us. He's trying to make himself known. We're the ones that don't want to hear. We don't want to see. And so far, we've seen a couple of ways that God has made himself known through his creation. We talked last week about how did both space and time begin at the Big Bang. In fact, why is there anything here at all? How did a universe of cause and effect come into existence? What, was there some sort of uncaused cause? We talked about that last week. Why does this universe that exists seem so precisely calibrated to support life? And we talked about the incredible odds against the life-supporting universe that we have in our particular position within that universe. We talked about that two times ago. We also talked just a little bit last week about how did such complex living organisms arise from non-living matter? And that's a really interesting question that we could spend weeks talking about. Um, but what we want to do this week is we want to turn away from science and we want to look into the, the realm of morality, philosophy. We want to look into the, the notions that are present there, the presuppositions, the starting point that so many of us take for granted and we're going to ask, what's our basis for our starting point? Tonight, what is our basis for morality? That's the question we're going to explore. What is our basis for morality? You know, it says here in Romans 1, that which is known about God is evident within them. We can look inside and we can see, I believe there's such a thing as right and wrong. And that's been there. And while two different people might have, you know, some differences in their idea of what's right and wrong, there's a surprising amount of overlap. And we know that it's there. It's there because God put it there. It says he has set eternity in our hearts. Romans chapter 2 says a little bit more on this subject. It says in 2.15, they demonstrate that God's law is written in their hearts. For their own conscience and thoughts either accuse them or tell them that they're doing right. 
And so even if we make up our own system of morality that might be a little bit different from God's, we still fail sometimes to follow that system of morality. We might think to ourselves, well, I'm a good person. I always help people. And then we find ourselves in a situation where we're not helping someone. And we have this sort of self-justification process. It's like we're having an argument with our own conscience. Sometimes it pats us on the back, and sometimes it says, wait, I thought you were not that kind of a person. I thought you didn't do that sort of thing, and now you're doing that sort of thing to someone you called a friend. Or we're like, you know, I always recycle. I'm a good person. And then we find ourselves in a situation where we're not recycling. And we, we are, we've got this, this battle within ourselves over my self-made morality and whether or not I'm holding to it or not. And God says, I put that there. So you would know that there is such a thing as right and wrong and that you would also know that you need to look beyond yourself to find a basis for that. C.S. Lewis talks about this. He says, everyone's heard people quarreling. Sometimes it sounds funny. Sometimes it sounds merely unpleasant. But however it sounds, I believe we can learn something very important from listening to the kind of things they say. They say things like this. How'd you like it if anyone did the same to you? Hey, that's my seat. I was there first. Leave him alone. He isn't doing you any harm. Why shouldn't you shove in first? Give me a bit of your orange. Come on, I give you a bit of mine. Come on, you promised. Now, what interests me about all these remarks is that the man who makes them is not merely saying the other man's behavior does not happen to please him. No, he's appealing to some kind of standard of behavior which he expects the other man to know about. And the other man very seldom replies to hell with your standard. Yes, we're, both people are starting from a point that more, some sort of right and wrong exists. And they might argue about the specifics, but where do they get their starting point? What is our basis for morality? Scripture says right and wrong are rooted in God's character. That is our foundation that everything else is built upon. The Psalm 119, verse 68 says, You are good, God, and what you do is good. Teach me your decrees. It's God's very character and his actions, and we need him to teach us right and wrong. You know, some object to Christianity on the basis of the problem of evil. But C.S. Lewis comments on this as well. He says, if you're objecting to God on the basis that how could a good God allow these bad things to happen, you need to ask, what is your foundation for calling anything good or evil? Lewis says, my argument against God was that the universe seems so cruel and unjust but how had I got this idea of just and unjust? A man does not call a line crooked unless he has some idea of a straight line. What was I comparing this universe with when I called it unjust? Yes, he starts to examine his presuppositions and began to realize, where, what's even my basis for calling something good or evil? And so if you're going to object to God on the basis of the problem of evil, you better not depend on God to have a basis for something called evil. What are our assumptions? What's our basis for morality? We're not asking whether a person can do good things regardless of their worldview, whether an atheist can do good. And atheists do good all the time. That's not our question here. Our question is more foundational. What's our basis for calling something right or wrong? What is our basis? And there's a lot of different theories on this subject. Who gets to decide what's right and wrong? Some people say, well, I think every individual should decide for themselves. Okay, that sounds pretty good, right? And I do think this can work in, you know, a lot of cases in matters of personal preference. You know, you might say, well, I love chocolate ice cream. And you'd be like, no, vanilla ice cream is the best ice cream. And we might, we might put that out to this room and we'd be split 50-50 down the middle, chocolate versus vanilla. And that's fine. 
All right, this is not an area of moral, objective moral values. This is a preference when it comes to a flavor of ice cream. Or we might get into a dispute about who's the greatest, you know, pop artist of all time, right? And, you know, I might, I might put Taylor Swift forward, you know, and then maybe half of you would say, definitely Taylor Swift. And then the room would be split. I'd say, what about Justin Bieber? And the other half would say, yes, definitely him. And we could be split 50-50. I bet we'd be split right down the middle, 50-50, between these two icons of music. (laughs) As to which is the greatest of all time. And that's okay. We can disagree on that, right? Or we might say, who's the greatest quarterback of all time? And some people might say Tom Brady with his six Super Bowl championships. And other people might say, no, no, Baker Mayfield. He doesn't quite have the body of work yet, but you give him time and he will be the greatest of all time, especially given what he's accomplished already in the NFL. And again, we could argue all day about who's the greatest of all time. And and you might have personal preference and different values to get weighed in when it comes to this decision, right? But on a more serious matter, how far can we really extend individual relativism? I mean, yeah, there's moral gray areas, but... When you think about this maxim, whatever's right for you is right for you. Well, I think all of us would say, actually, that, that runs out of gas at some point. You know, you think about the Nazi, um, the Nazi doctors that not only would imprison Jews and other minorities during World War II, but then they would use them in their laboratory experiments like rats or mice to see what happens when you just peel the skin off of a live person. What happens if you try this? What happens if you try that? And they would record their observations. I mean, that was right for them, wasn't it? Really stands in contrast, if you've seen the movie Schindler's List, about a Nazi business, uh, German businessman who spent incredible sums of his own money and rescued hundreds of people from death at the hands of the Nazis. You know, we're just going to say, well, you know, what was right for Schindler was right for Schindler. And what was right for Hitler was right for Hitler and his doctors. And, you know, who am I to judge them? Everybody decides what's right for them. Now, I think we could see a very clear difference here. We would see that, you know, it's it's not enough just to say, well, the individual gets to decide what's right. Because individuals can be wrong. Some people are like, well, here's what we'll do. We'll say societies, you know, maybe one individual can be a psychopath, but what if, what if a whole group surely is going to be right? What if, what if the society, you know, the majority rule decides what's right and wrong? Really? Majority rule decides what's right and wrong? Let me ask you this. Is human slavery right or wrong? We know that it's wrong to treat a human like property. And yet there was a time not that long ago, even in our own country, where the majority view was that that's okay to treat a human being, to own a human being created in the image of God. Well, back to, I mean, was it, was it morally right then and now it's morally wrong or were they wrong? And now we see things clearly. I mean, imagine a world where everybody thought slavery was right. What if we got back to that point today? Would that make it right? Or would you say, no, it's wrong and, and we would argue to try to help people come to the right conclusion. It doesn't matter if everybody thought it was right to treat a human as property, they're wrong. And we need a basis that stands outside of of humanity that serves as an anchor, as a foundation. Otherwise, we're just running in circles. 
What basis do we have to fight for reform if the majority rule decided what was right or wrong? Was Martin Luther King Jr. just some sort of social deviant who was fighting for the wrong thing because he was going against the majority view? Cultural relativism? No. What scripture gives us is it's a basis outside of ourselves to call something right or wrong, no matter what any other human being thinks about it. Well, some say, well, there is no such thing as objective morality. And under naturalism, it's hard to see any basis for that. I haven't found one. Richard Dawkins, atheistic biologist from Oxford, says the universe we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is at bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference, a series of physical processes that have unfolded to the point that they're at today. Michael Ruse, agnostic philosopher of science, he writes, morality is a biological adaptation no less than our hands and feet and teeth. He says, the subject of objective ethics is illusory. I appreciate that when somebody says, love thy neighbor as thyself, they think they're referring above and beyond themselves. Nevertheless, such reference is truly without foundation. Morality is just an aid to survival and reproduction, has no being beyond or without this. It's useful, but that's it. So it's not right and wrong in the sense that we think of it. It's a, it's a biological, it's some sort of evolutionary advantage that we have. Peter Singer, Princeton University, atheist bioethicist. He writes, humans who bestow superior value on the lives of all human beings solely because they're members of our own species are judging along lines strikingly similar to those used by white racists who bestow superior value on the lives of other whites. Yeah, do I think that, you know, humans are more valuable than mosquitoes just because I'm a human? Am I guilty of speciesism, like someone might be guilty of racism, merely because they're members of their own race? Why is it wrong to, to kill a human, but not wrong to swat 100 mosquitoes? I mean, you'd be applauded for killing 100 mosquitoes. And yet we think it's wrong to kill even a single human. Why is that? What's so special about humans? According to naturalism, uh, you know, we're guilty of speciesism. Why should we believe the mere fact that a being is a member of the species Homo sapiens endow its life with some unique, almost infinite value? John Paul Sartre ponders this question, one of the most famous philosophers of the 20th century, atheist. Sartre writes, you know, it's very distressing that God does not exist. Because all possibility of finding values in a heaven of ideas disappears along with him. There can no longer be an a priori good, since there's no infinite and perfect consciousness to think it. He goes, man, it's too bad God doesn't exist, because with him disappear all possibility of objective morality. And I would say this is a great example of what Paul is talking about here. He says, nowhere is it written that the good exists, that we must be honest, that we must not lie, because the fact is we're on a plane where there are only men. So we have nothing to appeal to outside of ourselves. And Paul says they suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Even though the law of God was written on their hearts, he's given us a conscience. We know there is such a thing as right and wrong. And Sartre is right about God being our basis for right and wrong, but he says, too bad there is no God. And with it, he also throws right and wrong out the window, lamenting the fact the whole time. Richard Dawkins, again, he says, 
You know, I support Darwinism as a scientist, but I am a passionate anti-Darwinian when it comes to politics and how we should conduct our human affairs. Isn't that interesting? On the one hand, he's constructed a worldview of Darwinism, and he admits there is no good and evil under Darwinian theory, under naturalism. And then he says, and yet, when I leave my, my you know, office at work, and I take off my, my biologist hat, and I go out to live in the real world, I'm the opposite of what my worldview says. And I'm, I'm against my worldview when it comes to living life. I thought the point of a worldview was to explain reality, not to explain it away. And yet that seems to be exactly what we're doing here. We're suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. We don't like the fact that God is there, and so we construct a theoretical worldview, and yet it's impossible to live, and it clashes with our very basic starting point. The things necessary for life to be livable, and we cannot live it out. That's what you see time and time again as you read the literature, as you read the theories from the ivory tower, and then you read these people saying, of course, I can't live this in my everyday life. Well, maybe we need a different worldview, one that fits the world. Isn't that what science is supposed to do? Fit the data? How about we look at the data and we look at life and we look at what fits best? Here's a chilling article by a Yale law prof, agnostic, Arthur Allen Leff. His article, Unspeakable Ethics on Natural Law, in the Duke Law Journal, 1979. And here's what, so in this article, what, what Leff is writing for, what, what he's arguing for is he's saying without an ultimate moral authority behind human law, the law is pretty arbitrary. And at any point, you can go to any law and you can say, well, says who? Well, you can only do 55 in this, in this street right here, 55 miles per hour, says who? You're not allowed to kill people, says who? We need something that stands outside as the ultimate moral authority. And I just want to read to you a few lines from this, a few paragraphs here. He says, if, if it's to fulfill its role, so he's talking about the ultimate authority that we could appeal to. If it's to fulfill its role, the evaluator must be the unjudged judge, the unruled legislator, the premise maker who rests on no premises, the uncreated creator of values. Now, what would you call such a thing if it existed? You'd call it him. But all I can say is this, it looks as if we are all we have. That's his conclusion. Given what we know about ourselves and each other, this is an extraordinarily unappetizing prospect. Neither reason, nor love, nor even terror seems to have worked to make us quote-unquote good. And worse than that, there's no reason why anything should. As things stand now, everything is up for grabs. There is no ultimate authority. And that's where he should have ended his article. But he gives one more paragraph. He says, Nevertheless, Napalming babies is bad. Starving the poor is wicked. Buying and selling each other is depraved. Those who stood up and died resisting Adolf Hitler, Joseph Stalin, Idi Amin, and Pol Pot, and General Custer too, have earned salvation. And those who acquiesce deserve to be damned. 
There is in the world such a thing as evil. And then he writes, all together now, says who? God help us. And that's how he concludes. And what I see here is Romans chapter 2, verse 15. They show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness. We go through all of our reasoning, and then we conclude, I don't care. There is such a thing as evil, even though I can't explain it. And I know it's true. Christianity says God provides the ultimate basis for morality, including the basis for human dignity and human equality. Yes, a lot of our morality is based on there's something special about humans. There's something different about squashing a mosquito versus squashing a human being and killing them. And that's because humans, Scripture says, are fundamentally different. We are created in the image of God. We are physical beings, but we also have God's image on us. We, we are spiritual beings as well. And that gives every human being, regardless of ability or disability level, equal and infinite value. And that's what a lot of our laws are based upon. Nancy Piercy puts it this way. She says, so where did the idea of equal rights come from? 19th century political thinker Alexis de Tocqueville said the idea came from Christianity. The most profound geniuses of Rome and Greece never came up with the idea of equal rights, he wrote. Jesus Christ had to come to earth to make it understood that all members of the human race, species, are naturally alike and equal. The 19th century atheist Friedrich Nietzsche agreed. He says, another Christian concept has passed even more deeply into the tissue of modernity. Nietzsche says, the concept of the equality of souls before God. This concept furnishes the prototype of all theories of equal rights. We tend to take the concept of equality for granted, yet it was Christianity that overthrew ancient social hierarchies between rich and poor, masters and slaves. Piercy says a few intrepid atheists admit outright that they have to borrow the ideal of human rights from Christianity. Like Richard Rorty, a committed Darwinist and in the Darwinian struggle for existence, the strong prevail, the weak are left behind. So evolution cannot be the source of universal human rights. It's survival of the fittest, not equality of all the species. But instead, Rorty says, the concept came from, quote, religious claims that human beings are made in the image of God. He cheerfully admits that he reaches over and borrows the concept of universal rights from Christianity. He even calls himself a, quote, freeloading atheist. Check this out. Rorty says, this Jewish and Christian element in our tradition is gratefully invoked by freeloading atheists like myself. I have nothing in my worldview to pay for this very important idea, so I'm just going to steal it from you guys. I'm, I'm a freeloader. And again, Paul, sa- Paul explains this. He says they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness. We develop a whole worldview where God is unnecessary, where God is eliminated And then we want to steal the most important concepts back and put it in ours, even though the puzzle piece doesn't fit at all. There's no room for it. Atheists often denounce Christianity as harsh and negative, she says. But in reality, it offers a much more positive view of the human person than any competing religion or worldview. So appealing that adherents of other worldviews keep freeloading the parts they like best. That's really what we see in a lot of these quotes here this evening. We see people freeloading the parts they like best, even though it really does not fit their starting point. 
So what is our basis for morality? What, what we've said so far is not only does naturalism fail to provide a basis for objective morals, but get this, even if we could somehow provide a basis for objective morality without God, and this is going to blow your mind here, naturalism can't even provide a basis for the freedom to choose between right and wrong. So even if we could say, well, this is right and this is wrong, naturalism does not provide a mechanism for saying, I choose the right and I choose against the wrong. Because in a world of natural processes, you think about chemical reactions, a chemical reaction doesn't decide whether or not it's going to react. It just does. These are physical forces interacting with each other. You can mix baking soda and vinegar together and you can measure the quantities of each. You can measure certain other environmental factors and you can tell exactly what will be produced from that reaction. And what the naturalists have realized is that if all we are is a brain, if there's no mind behind the brain, then aren't our mental states just a series of chemical reactions? Isn't that what produces them? Yeah, Stephen Hawking, he says, the molecular basis of biology shows that biological processes are governed by laws of physics and chemistry. There's no free will in physics or chemistry. Gravity doesn't decide whether to pull something down. It's a force that you can account for and calculate. And therefore, we are as determined as the orbits of the planets. So it seems we're no more than biological machines and that free will is just an illusion. Oh, yes. How about this um, one-minute video from Dawkins when asked this question, this question about free will? Um, I suppose, Dr. Dawkins, I would ask this to you. Is, is there a scientific basis for the concept of free will in human beings? And if not... Is there a biological evolutionary reason why all of us believe we have free will? The late Christopher Hitchens, when asked, does he believe in free will, replied, I have no choice. <laughs> it, it's a question that I dread, actually, because I... I I, I don't have a very well thought out uh, view about it. I think that, I mean, I have a materialist view of the world. I think that, um, that things are determined in a rational way by antecedent events. Um, and so that commits me to the view that uh, when I think I have free will, when I think that I'm exercising free, free choice, I'm deluding myself, um, that, that I'm... My, my brain states are determined by physical events. And, and yet, that seems to contradict, to go against the very powerful subjective impression that we all have, um, that, we, that, we, that we do have, have uh, free will. So Dawkins on free will, he says, it's a question I dread. So I don't have a very well thought out view about it. He says, on the one hand, I have a materialist view of the world. Things are determined in a rational way by antecedent events. What came before that determines what comes next, cause and effect. 
He says, when I think I have free will, I am deluding myself. My brain states are determined. And yet, he says, that seems to contradict a very powerful subjective impression that we all have, that we do have free will. And he says, we all, we all have this very powerful impression. And yet, he says, my worldview has no room for that. And so... He just says, I dread that question because I don't really have a good answer for it. You probably need an answer to that question. Isn't that something you'd want your worldview to answer? Isn't that a piece of data you'd want to take into account? Yes, God has set up the world in a cause and effect way, but it's an open system where he is able to intervene where there's more than just the physical, and we know it. Francis Schaeffer said, to say I'm only a machine is one thing, to live consistently as if this were true is quite another. Although man may say that he's no more than a machine, his whole life denies it. Yes, that's what we need to look for. We need to really think about, does my belief system fit with my actions? And if there's a contradiction between my belief system and my actions, I need to rethink either my belief system or I need to rethink my actions. Nancy Piercy explores this topic a little bit more. She says, even the great Albert Einstein was caught in the same dilemma. On the one hand, Einstein writes, human beings in their thinking, feeling, and acting are not free, but are as causally bound as the stars in their motions. That's the Hawking looks like he's sort of echoing Einstein there in that earlier quote. Yet on the other hand, Einstein said, I'm compelled to act as if free will existed. Because if I want to live in a civilized society, I must act responsibly. Einstein's phrase, as if, is a giveaway that he's talking about an irrational leap of faith. I have what I believe, but then I have to live as if that's not true. Every day, all day, except when I'm at work, at the university. She says, what about Marvin Minsky of MIT? He's best known for his pithy phrase that the human brain is nothing but a, quote, three-pound computer made of meat. That's a meat computer. That's determinism. There's no, no free will in his worldview. Obviously, computers don't have the power of choice. The implication is that neither do humans. Surprisingly, however, Minsky then asks, does this mean we must embrace the modern scientific view and put, the ancient, put aside the ancient myth of voluntary choice? He calls it the ancient myth. Should we put that aside, he says? No, we can't do that. Why not? Minsky goes on. Quote, no matter that the physical world provides no room for freedom of will, that concept's essential to our models of the mental realm. We cannot, quote, ever give it up. We're virtually forced to maintain that belief even though we know it's false. False, that is, according to Minsky's materialist worldview. Maybe if only there was a worldview that fit with science and the possibility of free will, like the biblical worldview. The hell that we do have choice. God made it evident to them. You can see his language. We're for, virtually forced to maintain that belief because it's impossible to live otherwise. Again, another MIT professor, Rodney Brooks, his book, Flesh and Machines, 
He writes that a human being is nothing but a machine, a quote, big bag of skin full of biomolecules. Also pretty catchy. Interacting by the laws of physics and chemistry. That's what we are, a big bag of skin full of biomolecules. In ordinary life, of course, it's difficult to actually see people that way. But he says, you know, when I look at my children, I can, when I force myself, see that they are machines. If I really squint hard, I can, maybe my worldview fits in my relationships. Is that how he treats them, though? Of course not. He says, that's not how I treat them. I interact with them on an entirely different level. They have my unconditional love, the furthest one might be able to get from rational analysis. And Paul says they suppress the truth and unrighteousness. And you can see it in the, in the honesty coming from these intellectual giants, MIT, Einstein, Cambridge, Oxford. How does he reconcile such a heart-wrenching cognitive dissonance, Piercy asks? He doesn't. Brooke ends by saying, quote, I maintain two sets of inconsistent beliefs. He's given up on any attempt to reconcile his theory with his experience. He's abandoned all hope for a unified, logically consistent worldview. He has no defense. He's suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. And yes, it is unrighteous to say my children are nothing more than machines. And to have a worldview that its logical conclusion is there's nothing special here. Squashing a mosquito, squashing a human. The only, the only thing that might stop me from that is speciesism. Machines. The tragedy of the postmodern age is that the things that matter most in life that are necessary for humane society, ideals like moral freedom, human dignity, loving our own children, have been reduced to nothing but useful fictions. One more uh, short multimedia thing here. This is an episode of This American Life from a couple of months ago, November of 2018. It's their episode called Where There's a Will. And it was stories about, you know, people whose, you know, in, um, just powerful will made things happen. But then the final excerpt in the show, they offer a, what they call a minority report from people who don't believe in free will. And just to set up this um, clip here, David Kestenbaum is one of the producers of This American Life. He's also got a PhD in physics from Harvard, so he's pretty smart. And uh, he starts off the episode by saying, let me say up front, I realize the ridiculous late night college dorm room nature of what I'm about to say, but here it is. I don't see how free will can exist. And he says how, as we were getting ready to make this show, I felt bad telling my wife that I believe this. Um, and he interviews a couple of different Ivy League professors. One guy is this dude, Robert Sapolsky, He's a neuroscience prof at Stanford. He's got a book called Behave. It came out within the last couple of years. Um, and he asked Sapolsky straight up, and Sapolsky says, I don't think there's room for the slightest bit of free will out there. But what I thought was so interesting about this episode is he goes on to talk with Sapolsky and then another lady from Harvard about their emotional reaction to this concept that there is no free will. And I think... It, as we, as we listen to this, I'll have the words on the screen and we'll listen to what they're saying. 
Um, it's about four and a half minutes. I think we'll see a lot of the, the concepts that we've seen here tonight. Uh, and remember, these are, these are Stanford and Harvard professors here. This is uh, Harvard lunchtime talk over the lunch table, okay, is, is what we get a glimpse into here. So we'll go ahead and roll the audio. For me, it is the one scientific like fact about the world that I am just not okay with. Like, I'm fine with the Big Bang and that all of existence came from a tiny point. Like, that doesn't phase me anymore. But I am not okay with the idea that I don't have free will. Like, that seems... Like, I can't give that up, you know? If I give that up, I'm giving up everything. I know. It's really, really hard. But like, I feel like I'm deciding to say what I say right now. Like, I feel pretty confident about that. I mean, it's just such a crazy-making idea, you know? Yup. Are you okay with it? Not on the slightest. If I stop and really think <laughs> about it, I get slightly panicked. There's no way to get out of, like, an existential morass if you start really thinking about this stuff. How often do you find yourself thinking about it? Oh, I don't know. Maybe four or five times an hour. <laughs> and this is all I think about these days. It's amazing to me that scientists don't talk about this more. I think I went my entire graduate career testing the fundamental laws of nature without it ever coming up. This is Melissa Franklin, professor of physics at Harvard. And for years, she was my professor. Like, this is how you think about it, too, right? That we can't possibly have free will. I think that there's no evidence that we have free will. I mean, I guess it's possible. It seems, it seems unlikely. I mean, there's, you know, it seems like we have free will. <laughs> <laughs> That's the thing, right? Yeah. So I was asking one of my colleagues today, do you believe in free will? And he says, absolutely. And I said, do you think our brains are made up of neurons and axons and things? He said, yes. And then I said, so how, does, <laughs> how do you reconcile those two things? And he said, if it walks like free will and quacks like free will, it's free will. <laughs> so like our word is wrong or something? <laughs> no, the point is that operationally we appear to have free will. But it's wrong, Yes, right? Yes, it, it is wrong, but it seems like we do, so why not just go with the flow? That's, that's the idea. She was at lunch when this conversation happened, and immediately another colleague jumped in to argue the other side. And the other person was just saying, you know, you're an idiot. <laughs> Without saying idiot, the word idiot. <laughs> just saying you're not. It's, it's one of these things when you start to talk about things that you don't want to think about, that you sort of hope that magic comes in some way. So one of them was saying, well, there could be some complex thing that comes in that, you know, actually gives us free will. And the other person was saying, you're talking about magic or God. And, and just, just say it out loud, magic or God. Melissa is actually okay with the idea of not having free will. I think maybe the problem of just a machine is not a nice, <laughs> it's not a nice way of thinking about it. I mean... A human is not just a machine. I mean, a human is an amazing yeah, machine. No. I love, I, I love the machine that is my wife, and my two little machines. They're really adorable. <laughs> <laughs> like, but when I think about it, that's what they are. They're so cute, though. And again, Paul says that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. 
he concludes by saying, I'm good at living with contradictions. It's in the machinery. That's our conclusion in a world without God. Maybe we could come to a different conclusion. Maybe we could come up with a different worldview. One where I don't have to believe that I love my two little machines at home and they're so cute and adorable, but really all they are is machines. One where I actually have the ability, a basis for the ability to choose between this and that. I think it's so sad to hear brilliant person after brilliant person as we read these books, as we listen to these interviews, and just to see them come up empty on this point. Because the goal of a worldview is to explain reality, not to explain it away. That's what I hope you're looking for. I hope you're not content to say, well, all the most basic things of my existence, things I can't live without, my worldview doesn't explain those. Because the truth is there is such a thing as right and wrong. And you've made choices. And you've fallen way short of God's righteous standard. He says his standard is perfection. And you know enough to know that you are guilty. And that's the bad news. But God also brings good news that we've been reading about in Romans chapter 1. And this good news tells us how God makes us right in his sight. And it's accomplished from start to finish by faith. It's by placing our trust in Jesus Christ who lived that righteous life and he died on the cross for our sins. And even though for us the wages of sin is death, the free gift of life is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord and it's received not by works but by putting our trust in him. And so we can freely admit to science and cause and effect but we can also say there's also something more than that in this world. There's a God who's really there and he's left evidence of himself all over the created world, including in my own heart. And he's left me evidence that I've fallen short of his perfect standard. But the good news is he offers forgiveness. And that's a choice that God is holding out for you, a choice that you can decide to make tonight. And that wraps things up for Romans 1. Yes, Lord, I sure am glad that I don't have to live as if my worldview is false, just in order to make it through. Thank you that you give deep, intellectual, satisfying answers as to where we came from, why I am the way that I am. Um, you, give, you give the basis for choosing right and wrong, and you give the basis for choice in general. And um, I, I thank you that we can look to you for real, satisfying answers, God. Thank you that I don't have to um, check, turn my brain off when I go and interact with my life, but that as I interact in this world, it, it, it gives me more understanding into how awesome and brilliant you are. And I, I pray, Lord, for those of us here who have never come to you through Christ, I pray that tonight would be the night where they turn their hearts, turn their lives over to you. Amen. This study was recorded at Xenos Christian Fellowship and is copyrighted. You may freely copy and distribute it as long as you keep it intact and do not sell it.